Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audrey Rindlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. So excited for you to join me today. Thank you again for putting up reviews in the podcast apps and for sharing this out with friends and family and helping us to grow our message of principles and purpose with mothers everywhere. I've got some really exciting stuff to share with you today, and I think it's going to take me a couple podcasts to pull it off. It's some things that I was exposed to years ago and had studied and and researched. I got them back out because I thought you might be interested in hearing about them and uh, did a little deeper research this time, got into some of the nitty gritty around it. And so we're just going to see how far we can get today. And then I'll finish up uh, with the rest of this information on part two. So we're going to talk about the faith of the ancients. And part of what I'm going to talk about today comes from an article called Three Shrines, Mantic, Sophic, and Sophistic. It's by a handful of authors, Rick, Perry, and Nibley. And um, it's an idea that I learned about, oh, long ago, 15 or more years ago in a class I was in. And I've kind of carried this idea and been had the opportunity to look for these ideas and other things that I've read and studied. And so now, after hearing all this great information, you'll have this frame of reference to use as well. And in order to understand some really key things about ancient Greece that um, are not popularly known today, that are not focused on, We have to define these terms first, and then we'll use them as building blocks to talk about the faith of the ancients and and why that's important and what it has to do with us today. So first of all, there were these concepts. You can look them up in the dictionary. There's still, you know, words that are used, but they just aren't popularly known today. The first one is mantic. Now, The Greek word mantic simply means prophetic or inspired, coming from the other world and not from the resources of the human mind. Something, there's two uh, kinds of what they call Judaism, vertical Judaism and horizontal Judaism. And the mantic represents the vertical Judaism, meaning the belief in the real and present operation of divine gifts by which one receives constant guidance from the other world. The mantic frame of reference supplies the element of hope in our lives by assuring us of the reality of things beyond. So so a mantic is a person that believes in a higher power and believes that that higher power is involved with the affairs of men and sends revelatory information in order for individuals to guide their lives. And one of the things that this article says is those who share the mantic hope of things beyond, whatever those things may be, are in a very real sense a community of believers, just as Christians, Jews, and Muslims form a fellowship of, quote, the people of the book, 
because of their belief in inspired books, even though they may not agree as to which books are the inspired ones. So the fundamental thing to understand as we get into this discussion about um, some other, you know, cool resources is that there's a certain frame of reference, a certain worldview that's, that says there is something beyond this world. There's an afterlife. There uh, is something that's going to happen after death. There's uh, some kind of God who's involved in our lives. There's prophets. There's revelation. There's holy books. There's holy places. There's holy things. There's things that are sacred. Uh, worship is necessary. All of those ideas are wrapped up in being a mantic. And it's it's the hope of better things to come that unifies the community of mantics. And this is why these authors can talk about how world religions have much in common because they believe in these revelatory documents and in revelatory people who give direction. So some of the focuses of the mantic perspective or worldview are revelation, the supernatural, the duality of our being, and the focus on what's to come. Now, we're going to juxtapose that against a different way of looking at the world and a different kind of worldview and perspective on life. And that is called the Sophic. So this is what this article says about the Sophic. Uh, the Sophic, on the other hand, is the tradition which boasted its cool, critical, objective, naturalistic, and scientific attitude. Its Jewish equivalent is called horizontal Judaism, scholarly, bookish, intellectual, and rabbinical. All religions seem to make some distinction uh, between the Mantic and the Sophic. On the other hand, the Sophic society, okay, so we have the Mantic society that's uh, brought together by this belief in the revelation and the holy and the afterlife. The Sophic society unites um, together as a single community, rejecting that proposition. The Sophic focuses on reason, materialism, the here and now, and it's, um, it's, it's not, I guess maybe there's a possibility there would be a little bit of a dualistic belief, but mostly it's focused on this, this is where we are now. This is where we find ourselves. This is all there is. And, um, we've got a, we've got to focus on the here and now and use our reason and our logic to figure things out for ourselves. Now, this may seem straightforward and it may kind of seem like in your mind and, and, and this, there's a lot of truth in this, that what we're talking about essentially is the difference between a quote, religious frame of reference and a scientific frame of reference. And there is some truth in that idea, but what you find is that there are people who actually, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a thinker. I, I love to reason things out and I'm going to probably usually trust what I reason out in my mind more than what I feel. And there are really two types of people, those who really trust their thoughts more and those who trust their feelings more. And so that is part of the discussion too. But ultimately what we're talking about is a perspective that regardless of whether or not you tend to trust your emotions more, or you tend to trust your thoughts more, whether or not you ultimately believe 
that there is something more than just this planet and this time, the short time we have on it. If you believe there's more to come, there's an afterlife, there's somebody or something out there involved in our lives who wants to give us direction and help us get home, then you're a mantic. And what can happen is that people who think that they're mantics, who say, okay, well, there's a God and and there's an afterlife and there's, you know, ultimate judgment or all those things. But ultimately, they trust their reason more than they trust revelation. And so they may run in religious circles and think of themselves as a religious person because they'll say, okay, well, I have these beliefs in God and, you know, afterlife and things. But ultimately, what the real fundamental distinction is, is when you're pressed into a corner and you have to make a decision, are you going to ultimately trust your reason or revelation more? When those two are potentially pitted against each other, which one wins? And because that can happen, because we all at critical moments in our lives are forced into a position where it perhaps seems like we sh- it would make sense to do such and such thing, but what we really know to be right seems somehow contrary to that or some revelation that we've received or whatever the case might be seems contrary to that. We're forced to make a decision between the two. And the mantic chooses the revelation. The mantic chooses the holy, chooses God, chooses what's eternally true. And the Sophic turns away from that. And so even though you're in a community of believers, you might ultimately be a Sophic. You might feel out of place among those that put emphasis on revelation. Now, another thing that can happen that I have noticed as, as, as a spiritual person and as a religious person, a practicing religious person, I've noticed that there tends also to be a huge emphasis on emotion in religious circles. And so what ends up happening is that the revelatory becomes equated with the emotional, which it isn't necessarily all the time. But because it becomes equated with the emotional and there's a huge dependence on you have to feel something rather than you just need to know something or think it through, that kind of thing, because revelation can come in many forms. And I think that in many cases, God would love to communicate with us in ways that are easier for us to understand. So we get it. We're not even necessarily talking here about personal revelation, but that's kind of ends up being part of the discussion. So the, so the person who's a thinker like me, who may struggle to feel and to understand their own emotions or what that is that they're feeling feels, uh, like they're not part of the community, like the mantic emphasis on the emotional becomes intellectually, uh, kind of overwhelming. And so it ostracizes that person. So what we want to do is understand the mantic and the sophic for what they are. 
And that is ultimately that, you know, we're going to talk about some great philosophers, especially Socrates, who was definitely a thinker, definitely a philosopher, and definitely reasoned things out as a mantic, which is we're going to get into in a little bit. It's going to be really, really cool. But I just want to make sure we're super clear about what these two terms mean, because there can be confusion around them. Ultimately, when you are willing to look to a prophetic voice, to oracles, to shrines, to holy places, to temples for uh, revelatory experiences and to find truth through those venues, and you trust that truth more than you trust your own reasoning processes, then you are a mantic. And when you don't like what those revelatory voices might say, and you've thought things through and you lean to your own thinking processes and you lean on what you've figured out yourself and what mankind has figured out, then you're a sophic. And one of the things that the article brings out over and over and over again is, is how it's impossible to harmonize these two. And what's happened in history over and over and over again is that good, even very wise, very intelligent people have tried to say, well, we can be both. And you can't. <laughs> Unfortunately, you just can't. Let me quote to you from the article a couple places. Whoever accepts the sophic attitude must abandon the mantic and vice versa. It is the famous doctrine of two ways found among the Orientals, Greeks, and early Christians. If you try to compromise between these two, you get nowhere. Because as one of the apostolic fathers points out, they lead in opposite directions. It's when one seeks to combine or reconcile the sophic and the mantic that the trouble begins. Um, and so these two frames of reference, these two worldviews have always existed in the world and still exist today. And we're going to see that in ancient Greek, which Greece, which is really, you know, along with biblical history, the foundations of Western civilization, this conversation has been going on all along and it hasn't ended it's still going on today. So let's go back to ancient Greece. I want to read to you from this article again, because what they say about these civilizations is just as true of ancient Greece. It says, each great civilization thought of itself as having been carefully planned in the beginning. All its rites and patterns handed down from above a complete perfect structure planned in detail from the beginning as the faithful reflection of a heavenly prototype present in sacred books of great antiquity. Okay, so we have this frame of reference that this civilization, along with all the great civilizations, believe themselves to be divinely kind of planted and put together with certain religious rites and holy books and shrines and all those kinds of things. This ties into something that we won't get into today, something that we talk about more in detail in the academy, but there's uh, Alexander Teitler put together a cycle of history after studying the great civilizations of history. And he says that every great civilization begins with spiritual faith. So a people finds themselves in bondage and they turn to God for guidance and their spiritual faith increases, which gives them the courage to fight for their liberty. And you see that over and over again throughout different civilizations. So that is really what 
how how a civilization begins is that they fight for liberty and for certain natural rights that they feel that they have or whatever the case might be and they feel that God's the companion in that in that fight whatever it looks like and so they believe that God is with them and that they have kind of divine guidance in their civilization and so Every great civilization essentially, for that reason, begins predominantly mantic. And there are certain holy rites and rituals, like this article is saying, that the civilization is founded upon. And it's a constant reminder to all the members of that civilization where they come from and who they are, and that there's a divine being watching over them and that that divine being will be there for them. Now, This is really cool because we see this in ancient Greece. There was something called the Mysteries of Eleusis. And um, the substance of these mysteries was the pre-existence, the present existence, and the future existence. It was the drama of the universe. And without this story, Greek life lost its meaning. So it was about contact with a higher hidden source Its basic meaning was to inspire or initiate and introduce someone to something he could never discover for himself. And so this is where you get the um, ancient oracles, the Greek oracles and the temples. These mysteries go back, I think, to the time of Homer or before. Um, And because they have been so respected and so highly regarded seen as sacred and holy, even to the people of that time, even to the Sophics who came on the scene later, they have never been disclosed. In fact, these authors tell us it's indeed remarkable that in all the literature, we fail to find any derogatory remark or witticism about the mysteries. They were holy and sacred and were not to be mocked. Even more remarkable is that none of the host of outspoken and gossipy writers Hungry for sensational talk has ever divulged the secrets of the mysteries. And so we don't really know a lot of details about what they were, but they were initiatory and inspiring in their very fabric. And they were meant to give individuals in ancient Greek civilization an understanding of who they were, where they came from, and where they were going. The genesis of the gods and the cosmos uh, the, the fall of man and its necessary retribution and his ultimate destiny and goal to return the, the doctrine of transmigrations of souls to a holy place was all part of these mysteries that were handed down to the people. And I don't know what you had to do to be an initiate. There was one, um, There was one, and I think it was this one that was part of it, and it was um, one of the goddesses went to the underworld and came back up, and that was kind of part of the ritual. But we also know that the most enlightened Greeks and Romans were all initiates to these mysteries. And this is why they had holy places, and these mysteries of Eleusis were taken very seriously. So a little bit later, a man comes on the scene... (laughs) I'm going to try to say his name, Musaeus, I think is how you say his name. He was the high priest at Delphi and was director of the mysteries. And he was the author of a great creation hymn and the founder of the first academy. 
it was the ancient and original office of the muses to sing this sacred creation hymn. It was the great archetype of all music and verse. And of course, this is where we get the muses from. They're part of this ancient religious rite that was part of the fabric of Greek civilization. And the great men were initiated into this belief system, into these mysteries. And the muses were nine women who were the purveyors of divine knowledge, not the authors of it, but they were the wise women who taught knowledge in all nine important fields. And the schools came from this high priest and they never forgot their origin as holy oracular shrines of the muses. And so the schools were really just an outgrowth of this attempt to educate the civilization in divine truth and divine revelation. So you find these muses in the sacred temples and we have images of them and carvings and all that kind of stuff. And so these schools had these lecture halls and walks and groves and libraries. They were centers of learning called museons and the muses were not worshiped. They were only seen as agents of the gods, purveyors of divine revelation. Now, of course, this is where we get the word museum from, was from Musaeus, who was this high priest and a purveyor of the mysteries and wrote this sacred creation hymn that the muses sang and founded this first school, which was meant to be a conduit of divine knowledge. Then along in 600 BC come the seven sages or the seven wise men of Greece, it was about 600 BC. And they used to meet at Delphi to unite their wisdom for the help of the human race, imparting of their knowledge to all who came to consult the oracles there. In that day, it was simply inconceivable that wisdom could be conveyed to the race anywhere but at the properly appointed holy shrine. So <laughs> this may seem a little hair splitting and academic. But we're going to go into, in our part two of this podcast series, we're going to get into Oedipus Rex or Oedipus um, the King. And we're going to get into Apology, which is um, the last words of Socrates before he was put to death. And you've got to have this frame of reference before you can understand those writings clearly. Because today, first of all, we don't really read Apology much. And if we read Oedipus Rex, it's in school. And, it, you know, there is some symbolism in there between, you know, about light and dark and blind. And you can see and you can't see and all that kind of stuff. But the meaning is actually, the real meaning at the time that Sophocles wrote it was much, much deeper than that. And it ties into these ideas of this kind of almost battle between the Mantic and the Sophic. And it's super important to understand that these ancient religious rites were in place for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in ancient Greece. They were very deeply ingrained in the way that these people thought, in the way that they lived and those three original philosophers, um, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, that we read and learn so much from, were mantics. They believed in God, and they were initiates to the mysteries, and they respected the religious rites and saw them as valuable. So it's really important to have that frame of reference when you want to really understand where we've come from and, and, and 
you know, it, it's so easy to take your current worldview and your current belief system and just to lay it on whatever you read in history and see it through your own eyes. And we're going to, we're going to talk about that more in detail when we talk about Oedipus Rex, but really we only see what we've been prepared to see. So we want to uh, open our eyes and see it more clearly. So these authors continue, the ideas which we designate as mantic were thus institutionalized for the ancients in the holy books, in the creation hymn, in the mysteries and in the schools to a degree we can hardly imagine. People today do not think of ancient Greeks as religious at all. Like this information is not really out there much. It's not talked about much. And it's fascinating to me, at least, that they, it wasn't just superstition and it wasn't just doing duty to some ancient hokum. It was a, an ingrained part of the way that they thought and the way that they lived. For them, it was easy to conceive of the heavenly order as real since one had reminders of it all around you with temples and oracles and high priests and the mysteries that you were initiated into and the creation hymn and the muses and the schools that pervade that sacred knowledge. I want to cover one more concept in this podcast, and then we'll, we'll do those two incredible uh, readings and, and look for these concepts in those readings in, in, in our part two. Another really important element of Greek thinking and Greek, the Greek way of life was the way that they talked about creation. Now, I just want to mention here too, it's not just the Greeks. We're talking about the Greeks and we're going to get into Greek writings, but you've got the Egyptian book of the dead. I mean, we, they spent their whole lives preparing for the afterlife. I mean, there was no question that they believed in holy things and, and a, and a, you know, a, an afterlife and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and there's, you know, and more and more in the last hundred years, we've uncovered more and more information that shows us that all ancient civilizations saw things as sacred and holy. Even today, we know certain things are inherently holy. And so these ideas really lend themselves to understanding history, but also understanding ourselves and understanding this battle between the Mantic and the Sophic. So Man's power to create was seen as holy because there was a belief in a higher power and that higher power was the creator. And we were like the creator in our ability to create. The Egyptians were fairly obsessed with the idea that in creating anything, a man was doing the work of God. Creation could not have any other than a divine source to be anything but a divine activity. The devil cannot create. He can only destroy. The article goes on, the Greeks, the Greeks were greatly impressed by the fact, attested by long experience, that even the greatest genius cannot create at will. They talk about, multiple authors talk about this in their writings, that the moments of genuine creativity are simply not within human control. Those who do create are unanimous in reporting that the process is something equally out of control. For Plato, what we recognize here as good, true, and beautiful is but a dim recollection of what we saw in another world in a better. And the experience of creation, whether in great calm or unbearable excitement, is, profound, is a profoundly religious experience. There are things which we call holy and not, cannot define beyond calling them holy. And so there was this 
really strong belief around man as a creator and that when we create, we are doing something holy and sacred and we're reflecting the power of God in our lives. And that when we create, we cannot control those revelatory moments when some great idea comes. These epiphanies that we talk about just come to us at random times and we can't control them. We can't have the insight we want to have when we want to have it. And so that lends itself to this idea that there's an outside source giving us that revelation and helping us along in the creation process, which is a holy activity. When we create, we're doing the work of God. It's just such a beautiful idea. So cool to think about, um, that when we are creating, we're doing the work of God because the devil cannot create anything. He can only destroy. Now, Plato taught that try as we will, we cannot view things neutrally. We are not impartial observers as the Sophics claim to be. When we applaud whatever is good and beautiful, it is not blind accidental force that we are applauding. It is something good. We bestow our approval and disapproval upon all we see about us. Could that be so if things just happen? So I want to also bring to light this important concept. So let, just to recap, there are mantics and sophics. The mantic and sophic worldviews cannot be reconciled. You either put revelation first and believe in a God who's involved and who will lead and guide and you seek information from that divine source in some way. And then you follow that divine, divine source or you don't, or you reject that. And what we'll see in Oedipus Rex is giving lip service to that and then not following it. And so that's the first, that's the first important thing to understand. The next important thing to understand is that all ancient civilizations and current civilizations really, um, have a belief in a kind of divine foundations in God appointing their civilization and bringing it to be. They have beliefs around creation stories and they have holy rites and their civilization began through spiritual faith. It's no different for the Greeks or the Egyptians or whoever else we're talking about. And that these civilizations had religious rites and they reminded their people constantly of the reality of divinity and the reality of the afterlife and made those things a constant source of inspiration to their civilizations and that this tension between the Mantic and the Sophic grew and grew in each civilization as it is in our civilization today. And that is the story of ancient Greece, that these mysteries were in place and the greats were initiated into them. And then over the time, the Sophics took, um, more and more kind of had more and more, kind of converts, I guess, and the leaning on reason became more and more prevalent. And that these great thinkers were mantics who did believe in God and revelation and afterlife. And the last important point is that the creation paradigm and the accidental paradigm the idea that everything just came to be in some sort of accident or naturally on its own without intelligence have been around forever. Darwin didn't say 
He said some things that were new. He gave some scientific framework to some of those ideas, but the ideas are ancient. They go all the way back to the roots of Western civilization that it did, it just happened on its own, that it didn't need a creator. And those two ideas between the mantic who believes in the creator and the sophic who does not are not anything new. So with that frame of reference around the faith of the ancients and with those ideas in place, then next time we get to dive in to Oedipus Rex and Apology by Socrates. If you want to spend some time in those before you listen to the next podcast, that would be super fun because then you'll have an even better frame of reference. But we'll look at what how these ideas were part of some of the most important works that we have from ancient Greece that tell us and can speak to us today about holding strong to our own faith and um, letting God's will be done. Thank you so much for joining me. If you don't have your copy of the audiobook, The Mission Driven Life, please head over to themissiondrivenmom.com and opt in for that free ebook and join us in the Facebook Mastermind, the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group. We'd love to see you there. For the after the podcast discussion, you're welcome also to put up any of your own questions and we can discuss things that are on your mind about how we can all become more mission-driven mothers together.